Welcome back to another episode of the Shift Drink Podcast. I'm Edward Russell, sitting here as always with Arthur Black. What's up? And today we are in Bloomington, Indiana uh, with a very special guest, Jim Meehan. We just talked about the pronunciation of his last name because um, I hear it both ways all the time. I hear Meehan or Meehan, so... To confuse it even, I was born James, which my daughter sometimes points out. I go by Jim, and then sometimes I'm affectionately or disaffectionately <laughs> referred to as Jimmy or Jimbo. So uh, it's, yeah. all, it's all fluid. I can't wait to hear the middle name. Exactly. Michael, <laughs> Michael is pretty standard. So Yeah. So you are uh, in Bloomington today to do a special event, and we've got a lunch here in a little bit, um, and we're going to have some cocktails, I presume. I assume. Yeah. Like Cardinal Spirits. Yeah. Um, Cardinal Spirits, where we uh, previously talked with uh, Lior Lev Sarkars. Uh, you can find that interview in our archives. But um, yeah, before we have cocktails today, um, we always ask everybody when we kick off each show, uh, what did you have to drink last night, Jim? I did not. I had, what did I have to drink? I think I had sparkling water. Yeah. It was pretty boring. I, it was. A very sort of boring, civilized night on the plane. I got loaded in at 11 o'clock, which normally West Coast flights are all red eyes. Mm-hmm. Got to, got to uh, O'Hare and then didn't get in until around 10. So I understand that bars on Sunday in Indiana close at 9, or at least they do in Bloomington. Uh, yeah, well, college town, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so I was told when I checked legally into Legally, they can stay open later. Yeah, so I was told last night when I checked into the hotel that the bars were all closed uh. and the restaurants were closed. I didn't get in until about 10. Mm. Where's Dana? Um, the Marriott Spring Hill or something, something kind of modest and boring, which mm. as having... I travel a lot, and I'm oftentimes put up in the the newest, hottest boutique luxury <laughs> hotel, which usually does not have a a mini bar. It doesn't have an iron in the room. It doesn't have. It's just yeah. It's all style and no substance. And so you know, sometimes the residence in is uh, all that I really need to make uh, myself happy. I'm always looking for a bar in the hotel. Like I just need something. Even if it's just neat booze, that's This was fine. definitely not the yeah, hotel no, no, for you're you. not getting the so, uh, yeah. no, but, Well, you're getting a tin. Um, what'd you eat? I brought food. That's the other thing that having living on the road, I found is that airports are um, are the sort of one of the world's most tragic food deserts. So yeah. my, my wife, I've brought my wife's pasta and... Um, some granola and some water. Pretty boring stuff for your audience. Can here. we do that with TSA? Can you take? Yeah, 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 sure. You can, as long as it's not liquid. Yep. Oh, so I travel with so food don't bring too. gravy. Yeah, gravy <laughs> <laughs> <Maybe> you <laughs> might work with, as long as it has something solid inside. I brought right. a little. I brought a little snack, a little, yeah. little canister of gravy yeah. for the flight. So for our listeners out there, um, Jim's just released a new book, um, which I've had a copy since it came out because I pre-ordered. So thanks. Um, yeah, I know that helps. So every anytime I have uh, friends releasing books or something really cool coming out, I always make sure I pre-order because I know that on your end, that helps yeah, the show. Yeah, it's the, the first time I wrote a book, I wasn't sort of clued into the metrics with which books work, but pre-sales really can be a big difference maker for the publisher to understand the audience interest in the book. And cocktail books are never going to make a bestseller list. But if you, the thing that I didn't realize is that Every pre-sale go, goes towards the first week of sales. So most books if they're who, oh. that are not written by a major best-selling author, their only chance to make the bestseller list is with huge pre-sales because that goes towards their first week of sales. That's interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Uh, this is your second book. Second book. Um, I, 
you get, I know in every interview you always get asked the same question. So tell us about Pego Club, PDT, et cetera. No, it's, um, and and you, I wanted to address, uh, obviously, those things. I mean, um, PDT changed everything for all of us. Like, probably none of us would be sitting here if it weren't for, you know, a, a lot attributed to that bar. Um, I wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, you, you sure. wouldn't be sitting here. I right. really and truly would not be sitting here. Um, but it was an interesting path um, that you took. But I, I was looking through your books, um, well, of course, since, since they've come out. But And it struck me, my favorite thing, and we talked about it a little bit on the way down here about your books, is that you always include diagrams of back bars yeah. and like how everything is laid out. And I'm such a sucker for efficiency. Yeah. That I love seeing the diagrams and how and like in different bars and how it's efficient for them, maybe not for everybody. Right. And this is definitely geeky industry stuff that we're talking here. But um, you know, me, I've got uh, a couple of restaurants and bars, so you know I love to see that. And and every time you build a place, you think, ah, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Next yeah. time, I won't make that mistake. So yeah. seeing a bunch of them compiled is really. Yeah. The in- the interesting thing I found over from book one to book two, I sort of. The book one project was sort of put, look at what's great about the Savoy cocktail book, whiteboard it, and just be like, this is what defines this book. And these are some other things that I could add to it, not to really change what it fundamentally is, but that, that I think are relevant. And sort of one of the things that was very relevant, I think, in 2009 you know, to 11 when I was writing the first book was everyone wants to serve these cocktails, but they don't understand how your setup your, and your mise en place will determine whether you can serve them quickly enough to entice people to order them instead of a beer or a gin and tonic. So I think the two spreads on both the one on floor plans and the other sort of coaxial ones that actually explained what it looks like on the other side were really important to get readers to understand that if you want to serve drinks, you actually have to set your bar up differently than if you, then you're a corner bar or, or you know, a brew, brew pub. And so that, you know, having then the book comes out and I think that bartenders are all, you know, artists, craftsmen, we're we're all creative people and we also all come from different backgrounds. And one of the things I found about all of my favorite bartenders and, and most bartenders in general is that because we all come from different backgrounds and have different experiences, we all have different palettes and different preferences. So you're never going to get a room full of great bartenders to agree on any specs (laughs) for anything. Like we all sort of like, sort of will politely agree to disagree or impolitely just disagree. (laughs) Well, there aren't any egos involved. (laughs) (laughs) So I found that like the recipes for the PDT cocktail book, I wouldn't say that they were controversial, but they were sort of, uh, no one comes to me and ever says, oh man, I'm so grateful you published all those recipes, but the people love those design chapters. So for the second book, looking at what really worked for the first book, I was like, I'm gonna expand this and go much deeper. Cause I think that bartenders are actually way more interested in design and I think, and are actually much better sort of, I think, program to, to sort of design and, and decorate than the average bear. Yeah, I mean, you've got, the, the layouts are cool because visually both of the books are really beautiful as well. Like, Thank you. I, just, I love the layout, the illustrations, nothing gets overly fancy. And I love all the photographs in your new book. Like, I mean, I, Yeah, the photographs are great. Especially for those of us in the industry, it's really fun to like flip through like, oh, hey, there's Angus, there's Simon, there's Don or whatever. <laughs> it's really neat to see everybody. Of course, uh, Don Lee, previous guest on our show as well. Um, that was your uh, kind of opening bar manager. At yeah, PT, yeah? I, I wanted to find, 
A, like there's there's a book that Greg Bohm from Cocktail Kingdom showed me from the 30s that was the only book that I've seen that had like black and white pictures of bartenders. Like Harry Craddock was in there and a bunch of other bartenders. And I realized that like what we do is while we're all sort of the new hot thing or and have been for maybe the last 10 years and get a just disproportionate amount of media and airspace for what we do, we are we are really when you kind of get cut it all away. We're blue collar workers. We're all we're sort of tradespeople. Service. Service. And I feel like so many there are some of us who are fortunate, if you'd like to call it that, enough to sort of be out there and frequently photographed or videoed. But there are a lot of people in my book, like you know, like Desmond Payne or Tom Nickel or um, you know, Shintaro Okamoto, there are people in there who are not, they're the people that supply us, whether they make gin or they cut ice or they're brewers or roasters. Yeah, there's like uh, sculptors and and furniture. And And I feel like the offering, giving that like Annie Leibovitz sort of like distinctive and noble and humanistic portrait to people who don't, who people, some people aren't familiar with, I felt was something that, dignifies our craft and dignifies the people that allow us to do what we do. And the I portraits think, are beautiful. Yeah, and Duran Guild's portraits, that's what he really, I think he's great at portraits. That's probably his major focus in his career. And so then that, his, that was it like glam shots? Or yeah, anything? and then his, and his cocktail <laughs> photos <laughs> are, are like totally uh, bonkers, you know, so that was, that was fun. Yeah, I mean, I'm just flipping through here. I mean, we've got, Everybody in here is just a super, super uh, important guy well, and adds something to the conversation. Which Yeah, I feel like for me it was the, the biggest sort of challenge this book pivoted on was that I believe that bartenders are a byproduct of all of their mentors and all of the people who have kind of trained them and sort of nurtured them throughout their career. So I am a byproduct of those people and many others. But the challenge becomes when you write want to write your own personal bar manual is... I, am I going to edit and and sort of collect other people's ideas and call that my sure. book, or am I going to write my book and credit them? So that after interviewing all these people under the guise of journalism for like over a hundred hours and having all this amazing material, I realized like shit. Like I want to <laughs> publish all of these great things that these people who I respect so much have shared. But if I do that, my voice will one hundred percent be drowned out, and it'll be fifty distinct visions of how to do it. So what I ended up having to do, which was hard, but I, but I think was uh, hopefully effective, was to write my book and to use those interviews to complement, contrast, sometimes disagree, sometimes emphasize, but to, to use their quotes to say things that, that are more maybe effective or more... Uh, valuable coming from them as opposed to me. Sure, no. Um, I mean, I've got, um, I'm utilizing my my amazing degree in journalism. Actually, I went to school here at <laughs> Indian University. And this is as far as uh, I've utilized my degree is <laughs> starting my own podcast. Right? This podcast like, looks like journalism to me. Right. Um, but no, that's exactly what, you know, you, you learn to do is like, you know, you've, you're telling a story, but you can't tell the story because the writer can't insert his own voice necessarily and it and it's always more interesting and fun um, yeah you know just like we do here like i mean we could go on air and talk for an hour about all the work you've done and about pdt and, and pegu and and prairie school but i mean it's more fun to hear it from you yeah and, and it's 
I oftentimes tell bartenders that what we do every day is tell a story. And whether it's telling the story of the bar, telling the story of the neighborhood, telling the story of the drink, of the spirit, of the beer, the wine, the dish on the menu. And I think that the you have to be excited every day to tell the same story. So it's like to tell the thousandth time, people's like, hey, what's <laughs> up with this bar? Why is it called Pete's Place? And it's like the day that you're not excited to tell Pete's story, if if Pete was the person who brought you in, is the day that it's I like think he said pizza place, and no. I was like the most generic. Yeah. I was like, we have pizza but here. But hey, if it was called Pizza Place, you got to be yeah. excited about that. And I, I no, think it, that honestly, it's not a bad name. No, sure. yeah. I mean, look at how many party stores. That's yeah. true. Yeah, you know, it's appropriately no, named. No one, no one wonders what what you have to what you're <laughs> right. going there to buy. What, what do they sell there? Yeah. Mm. So I think that the storytelling is a huge aspect of what we do, and if the second you become too cool or you know that you that your own story isn't interesting to you is like it's the beginning of the end for you so you spent 12 years in new york but for everybody that knows of you it's primarily from pdt um and your books um but you no longer live in new york no um but you spent a little over a decade there yeah um but you did you start off working for danny meyer was that your first gig so i I moved there nine months after 9-11. I graduated from school in Madison, so I'm, I'm Badger and Hoosier territory here. <laughs> um, and I, I'd, my brother moved there um, in 97 or 8, and I knew as soon as I moved him out there that I wanted to be there, but I wanted to finish school and save money. And so I moved there right after 9-11. What did you go to school for? Um, I was supposed to be, I always, <laughs> I, I remember like reading Michael Crichton books as a kid and just being like, this dude is a medical doctor who writes best-selling books about cool things like dinosaurs. And I was like, I want to be, I always, I fell in love with literature through a, a fifth grade English teacher named Mr. Samuelson, who was retiring and sort of treated treated our class like dead poet society. And I feel like I immediately was like, I'm going to meet. I lo- that, that, that would be, it's, it's nice to have those kind of people. Yeah. In, in maybe your it was life. seventh grade, but it was just, it was this guy who's like, who's so burned out and done. And he just like, he read us Blake poems. Like we were adults in like seventh grade. And I was like, this is cool. And so I always wanted to be, uh, I always loved literature, but I wanted to be a doctor. And I think it was because I wanted to, I always wanted to help people, and I, I think growing up in a like suburb, you know, a bougie suburb, I always thought I needed to have like a prestigious career, and right. so do, being a doctor ticked both those boxes. And then when I got to school, it was I was sort of crushed by organic chemistry and calculus, and my <laughs> and, <laughs> Me too, and, man. and bad grades in uh, you know my freshman year, and I realized like. I had a friend whose sister was a valedictorian in high school who didn't who didn't do well on her MCATs, didn't get great grades, and didn't get into med school. And I was like, I'm not going to waste what everyone keeps telling me is <laughs> right. going to be the greatest years of my life, you know, studying flashcards for something that I just don't understand. So I looked through the syllabus and I saw, like, there was a French class and then there was a graduate-level class on, on the Harlem Renaissance. And I was like... I called up the professor and I was like, I don't have any pre of the prerequisites, but I'd love to sit in this class. She let me in and I took four of her classes and ended up doubling in African-American studies. Nice. So, so I always joke that I majored in books and black people and now I've become a bartender for my career. It's, um, and it's, 
I mean, literature, and, that's a incredible, that's a little bit more useful uh, in, it in was. our I line mean, of work I than you would like, think. That. And I feel like looking at like my African-American studies degree, it's just like looking at, it was incredibly useful, I think, for what we do now today. I answered a question um, to Edible in Indy about, you know, how I've looked at our career. And it's like, I feel like you look at the way sort of like rap artists turned rap music into hip hop culture. In some ways, I feel like what we're in the midst of right now is looking at how our nerdy, you know, interest in liquid has turned into this thing. Like now we have a podcast. Like yeah, who would right. have thought yeah. that there could be a podcast about bar culture or about drinks or spirits or producers? And I feel like this to me is very similar to what I learned about in college. So well, I, I oh, think sorry. you go to school to figure out what you don't want to do. <laughs> right. You yeah. Know, like I, I, I did the pre-med thing. Um, actually I fucking loved it. Um, but I was, I did like a surgical tech thing for a few years and I could smell the red tape and the bureaucracy and the business of, of medicine. Mm-hmm. And it just, I, and honestly, I, and I fucking love nurses. They work so hard. Um, but I couldn't handle all the soccer mom cattiness to like, it was, you know, ridiculous. Yeah. I, I volunteered in an emergency room for a year and, and it was, I think what I realized very quickly was that like the doctors have 30 to 50 patients to see a day. Mm-hmm. And so the nurses actually did everything that I thought the doctors did. And like you said, some of them were, most of the nurses I worked in, like it was like a, trauma center like there was no there was no weak links in that in that chain but it was it was also like to be honest it was depressing you know what I mean like it was every morning seeing people kind of coming to the hospital in some degree of of a place where that like yeah potentially was life-changing I I just I have so much respect for doctors yeah, that's and nurses. I, am. I love the medical professions because it's not something that I could do yeah. myself like Service can be challenging, but like when it's literally a life, life and, and death, death. Yeah. and you know, and I always say that to my staff and everything just, that goes with it. I mean, yeah. the, the family and then like mm-hmm. drug seekers and like uh, my it. my better half Erica is a remarkable nurse and um, yeah, but it, she's an amazing person. And like, you can talk to her and be like, uh, nursing would be a great job for you, even yeah. if you didn't know she was a but nurse. But I feel you like know? bartending is a lot like nursing. Yeah. But the biggest difference is, for the most part, we're not dealing with life and death situations. <laughs> Ho- hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully, not at all. Not. Not that, yeah. And I, so I feel like it's a, it's a blessing. You talked to that about that service aspect, and that's why I was asking about Danny Meyer, because you were part of... Um, uh, his organization during a kind of a transitory phase where you got a rare opportunity to kind of like have access to the man. I know. had a little access to Danny. It was a fascinating time because it was when Danny was buying out Tom Colicchio and when he had replaced him with Michael Anthony. And Michael Anthony came from Blue Hill and Blue Hill Stone Barnes. Tom had his sort of, he was more focused on craft and witchcraft and craft steak and TV. And so it was a pretty amicable, I think, split, which had, you know, that Danny had been pushing for for a long time. Oh, so, second. Witchcraft. So Tom Colicchio yeah. right. was the opening chef of Gramercy Tavern. And that this was the time, it was 2005, when Tom had, like, was, he had craft, which was actually, like, 
I think two blocks south of Gramercy Tavern. Okay. So he was really sort of going off on building his own brand, which was the craft brand. Which is which is which is a, like its own sort of juggernaut. And I feel like then in TV as well. So Tom was really very rare. Neither Tom or Danny were there very often. They came by once a week or like once Tom probably once every two weeks. And so to to relaunch a number one Zagat rated 13-year-old institution with a new chef, with a little bit of a like sort of design refresh was amazing. And I honestly took the job. I was like the first bartender they'd hired from the streets in years because they generally hire from within and try and train from within. And so I was excited to work with all these bartenders who'd been there for 10 years and all these old dogs just like fell off the bus like in like a matter of six or seven months. So I went from looking for like training mentorship from these bartenders who were incredible to being the head bartender within seven or eight months and then relaunching the restaurant with Michael and, and then kind of two and a half years I spent there kind of chewed up, spit up, got myself fired there and then moved on. But oh, yeah. it was a, it was the, it definitely for me was the, I'd probably still be there today if they hadn't fired me. And, um, and it was, uh, in retrospect, probably not such a bad thing. Ah, uh, I mean, every single thing, including getting fired there was very pivotal and important for my career and, and the friends and everything. I, it was just a, yeah, it was a surreal experience, including working with Danny. Are you at liberty to talk about what you get canned for? Yeah, yeah, it's sort of like a, it's a great, I feel like what I got canned for is a great, uh, it's the story of my life, really. It just actually kind of came, it kind of came through uh, in the worst possible way there. But I, I remember I was running a bar in Tribeca, a, re a restaurant bar. I was working as the assistant wine director and bar manager of this restaurant called Pache that was owned by the, like, the two hottest restaurateurs in town. It was a guy named Jimmy Bradley, who was the chef, and Danny Abrams, who was the front of house operator. And this was their like fourth restaurant in five years. They were this unstoppable force. And everything that could go wrong did go wrong at this place. And as the ship was sinking and their partnership was disintegrating, and it was a great restaurant and a great team, one of the waiters at this restaurant who worked at Gramercy Tavern was like, there's an opening at Gramercy Tavern. I think you'd love working there, you know, because everyone there is, is like you are. And I think at that time in my career, I was so driven and my career was my life. And, and this is 2005. And I just, it was very unusual in 2005. Most people who were bartenders in New York in 2005 were tending bar be, you know, while their band wasn't playing or while their novel sure. wasn't selling. It was something they did to... to I'm to, an actor. Yeah, like it was something they did <laughs> right. to, to support another passion. And bartending was my passion. And I was very passionate about it. And that zeal for the job was at that time probably my greatest, was like my, like the, was getting in the way of me realizing my potential. And I think I moved to Gramercy and opened Pegu Club right around the same time. And I think I tried to bring a lot of, Pegu Club was like a think tank of like-minded sharks. It was a, yeah. it was the- That's the epic lineup of it was all the, stars. Yeah, it was just nothing but number four hitters on a baseball team led by, you know, the greatest number four hitter of all time. And every, it was insane. And I think I was trying to bring a lot of that 
passion and intensity and, and desire for excellence that we were trying to achieve at Pegu Club at Gramercy Tavern. And I think ultimately, while the semantics of why I was fired, um, the crime doesn't, you know, the punishment doesn't fit the crime, I think I was ultimately fired for, you know, rattling that cage too hard instead of understanding what the, what was in the cage and how I could get it to sort of be a better mousetrap. So, I mean, the, the straw that broke the camel's back there was there was a new bartender who, um, it was this first shift. I, I was working, I was a three bartender bar. I was work middle. He was working, I think, service. And one of my like nerdiest cocktail guests came in and ordered a Martinez. And I watched the new bartender pour a Martinez with Punta Mess and Peixote's bitters. And I like went over to him and it doesn't have Punta Mess and it doesn't have Peixote's bitters. And I went over to him and I asked him, hey man, what are you making? He's like, oh, I'm making this guy Martinez. I was like, that's great. I was like, you know what? What recipe are you using? And he told me what it was. And I was like, just so you know, that's not the recipe. You should ask your buddy, our colleague, Scene. He has like a little pocket recipe guide. This was like pre-iPhone app. So we, little, we mm -hmm. literally had Museum of the American Cocktail pocket recipe books uh, that were published in like 2006, wow, I think. literature, paper. Yeah, <laughs> books. And that bartender's girlfriend, who was like junior manager at GT at the time, overheard heard the whole, like sort of saw this whole interaction and found it. She it sat me down at the end of the night and wanted to write me up for it because she was like, you know, it was totally inappropriate the way that you sort of interceded on behalf of, you know, the, this, this whole situation. And I basically was like, if you saw a guest order a chicken and you saw the server go punch in the steak, would you let the steak come to the table and then wait for the guest to send it back for the chicken? Or would you go and tell the server that they, you actually think they ordered steak, why don't you go check? And so I believe I was, I, I refused to uh, sign off on my write-up and was promptly... Uh, yeah, I mean, why the fuck are you getting written up, though? I mean... It was it, a, long story short, I mean, sure, if she was here to tell her side of the story, this was not the sort of, this was the sort of, that was what I was told I was fired for, my sort of insubordination over my, uh, over that interaction. But I do believe... Um, it was it was really months of insubordination. It was it was months of insubordination, <laughs> and the insubordination really had to do, I believe, with having had years now to sort of digest it. Um, I think I I remember my dad telling me as a young kid that his best friend uh, was a marine who was honorably discharged for riding his troops too hard. And it was literally like when you're a Marine and you ride your Marine so hard that they kick you out of the core, <laughs> like you have a, like, you, you probably you crossed a, the you line. You have like a sort of like a little bit of a problem. And, and I look back at my time there and I think in retrospect, there were a lot of people who cared disproportionately more than the average bear about wine and spirits and food, but that they were, you know, way more, I think, sensitive and way more, they did have other things go on in their life. And I think that the moral of the story um, that I've taken out of the experience was really that as a young manager, leadership type figure, I tried to lead by example exclusively. And I believe that the example that I set 
did more to isolate me and sort of isolate my colleagues than it did to bring everyone along. And I think as I've gotten older, I've realized that leading by example is not something, is not like a means to an end. It's just what you have to do if you are a leader. But what you really have to do is motivate. People need to be shown yeah. what but to I mean, do. That, that's two different, like, it sounds like two different lifetimes. You know, I mean, there's, there's something to be said about the young professional who wants to lead by example and is extremely passionate about what they do and, and you know, cares if, if other people in that same space are living up to, to a certain standard. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that's... I think if you, if you, like, look at it from a kitchen sort of, you know, hierarchy view, the sous chef is usually the, like, obnoxiously talented cook who rides the other cooks to the point of them wanting to quit and it's the executive chef who sort of manages the sous chefs and it's like guys like you gotta that teaches them more skills about leadership and I think that since as I look back and 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 sort of not so ironically say that I'd probably still be at Gramercy Tavern if they didn't fire me um I think that it was the best thing maybe for me at the time it it sort of pushed me to uh, it pushed me into PDT full time. As, as you mentioned before, I had John Darragon and Don Lee um, who took on the initial GM role when I, when I basically was still at Pegu and Gramercy and basically getting fired from Gramercy. And then uh, I was the last opening bartender at the Pegu Club. And I remember being at a, I was invited to this tequila immersion at the Bellagio in Las Vegas. And I remember... I left on this junket to spend time with all these people that I'd wanted to meet. And I've, I've forgotten, I was working like six days a week and also editing Food and Wine's Cocktail Book. And I literally did not get my shift covered, my one shift a week at Pegu <laughs> covered. And I remember calling, it was like- Ken, From Vegas? From, from Vegas, following <laughs> up with Alistair Burgess. Not gonna make it in, Alistair sorry. Alistair Burgess, who now owns Happiness Forgets and two other bars in London, Kenta, um, a couple of other of my colleagues. And I was like, guys, you know, like I, you never got back to me about covering my shift. And all of them were like, no, we're not covering your shift. And I <laughs> called Audrey on Sunday from Las Vegas and was like, Audrey, like no one would cover my shift. And Monday was a very slow shift. And I figured like maybe she would just like either like force one of them to cover my shifts or, or just let it go with a one bartender night. And I was like, all right, that's too bad. I'll see you tomorrow. And I was like, oh man. So I like called my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time and got my flight changed. And it was like a very early morning flight. And I decided as, as I used to decide 10 years ago that like, you know, it's Vegas. I'm just going to stay up all night and then <laughs> I won't. Yeah. So I literally, of course, like partied till, Laid and decided I'll like sleep for one hour before my flight and then miss that oh, flight. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember getting, I arrived directly from the airport two hours late for my shift and it was packed. Audrey was behind the bar working my shift and I was literally like, holy shit. And, and I remember like stepping behind the bar and Audrey, like so much credit to her, like just gave me that sort of like mm -hmm. not even a mean look. But that just that like that hundred yard stare and then and she never actually disciplined me or said anything about it. But I realized like that that point that it's time to go. You know, it was sort of just like not because it was because of anything that they did or or but just because I'd like I'd been there for two and a half years. It had run its course. 
And there were other opportunities out there that I wanted to pursue. So um, speaking of which, um, then, then what happened? So effectively, John and Don, uh, who were our regulars at the Pegu Club, who they, there was one weekend, it's funny, The Joy of Mixology is being released by Gary Regan mm-hmm. in, in uh, tomorrow. Tomorrow, yeah. Tomorrow it comes out. And at this time, in this is 2005, Gary is doing these cocktail immersion camps called Cocktails in the Country. Mm-hmm. And yeah. The Death & Co. team, Phil, Brian, Jim Kearns, Alex Day, Joaquin, they all wanted to go as a team to Cocktails in the Country. And so they were trying to figure out how they could do it without closing the bar. And somehow John and Don were drinking there and offered to run Death & Company so that the team at Death & Company could go to Cocktails in the Country. And Dave Kaplan and Ravi, I guess, allowed it to happen. So for two nights, or at least one night, John and Don my bar regulars ran death and company. And after they actually pulled it off, I was at that point, the cocktail community, which was a very small group had recently been sort of fractured by the heart and soul of Pegu club quitting all at the same time and opening death and company. Mm -hmm. And the lesson that I learned from that was that you, you know, we, Yes, there are consulting opportunities, but you don't take anyone's employees to open your consulting project, which is what Phil did. Um, and so I needed to yeah, staff. You gotta be cool with that. Yeah, like it the, was the, the poaching thing. Is- it was. It was not. Uh, you know, in all, a lot of time has passed, and and the sort of that those fractures have healed, and and thankfully, I think Audrey and Phil and Brian and everyone is is back is cool again. But it was a tough time, especially for Audrey. And so I needed to hire a team at, at PDT. And once I saw John and Don run Death and Cause, like, if you guys want to run a bar, I've got this opportunity coming along. And so basically they, when my business partner came through with a contract that was not a partnership, but was like a profit sharing deal, I was like, look, man, like, I really want to get, you know, work with you on this project and blah, 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 but I'm not going to leave Gramercy Tavern and the Pegu Club to, for this profit sharing deal, which was not what I had in mind. And so I remained involved, but installed John and Don. And then four or five months later, I'm fired from GT and Pegu Club has kind of like kind of run its course. And, I'm, and John and Don kept their day jobs and were struggling to keep the bar open past midnight and they were just ready to tap out. So I jumped on board and sort of the rest is sort of history for me. I think that the they had done a great job in the in the sort of early days of kind of uh, bringing their brilliance to the bar, but but I think that they were not they didn't come up in the industry and they sure. they, they were running a bar like two cocktail geeks as opposed to like running it like a team or a dysfunctional family or a business. So that really, I mean, the opening of PDT, obviously that. In my eyes, definitely set off the whole like hidden bar, like the, slash the speakeasy kind of vibe. I mean, you're, you opened oh seven. We opened in oh seven. Oh seven, yeah. Um, and I mean, obviously, you know, think as the trends move outwards from the coasts, you know, you start seeing that all over the place. We actually talked with uh, Timo Jansa in Amsterdam last summer about Door seventy four, and it's like. It's really weird to have this like speakeasy style bar in a country that didn't ever have prohibition, <laughs> you know. Yeah. yeah. 
It's like uh, it's a concept. They, uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, there, there, there might have been someone might have been stoned. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know. Yeah, right. Well, it is Amsterdam, but um, that obviously kicked off a lot of like. I mean, how do you feel about the way that that's taken into a lot of directions? That maybe it didn't turn out so well, and it just like it was form over function yeah, in a lot of cases. It's interesting. The as I like look back on it, the 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 way PDT started was my my Brian Shabero who owned Crypt Dogs, um, who speaking of marijuana is stoned at all 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 moments of all days and good he, for him he, exactly and he uh, he effectively like had a liquor license he somehow got a liquor license at his hot dog stand wasn't making the most of it and there was a space in the same building next door that was failing and he realized he could build a bar in it and and if in order to not have to apply for a second license, he just had to cut a wall between the hot dog stand and the, and the space next door, and it just becomes bar dining room. And so as a stone person with, <laughs> with a sadistically you know, amazing sense of humor, he puts a phone booth door in there and sort of uses... The, so long story short, I feel like PDT, from a form standpoint, is the form of a wickedly smart stone person who with a hot dog, you know, with like a sort of punk hot dog skateboard shop mentality. And you're right. It's been sort of, it's been appropriated well. Like I went to a bar who they'll kill me for forgetting it, but there's a bar in Mexico city that you enter through a Dos Equis cooler in a, <laughs> in a taco shop, which to me is like, That's cool. it's arguably like, a, I think the exit is the, is the cooler, but it's, What's that dope place we went to in Miami? The, oh, the, Bodega. Yeah. yeah. Like, like you have my, to go through the walk-in yeah, cooler. You go through, yeah. walk-in, you go through a walk-in, I think, at Noble Experiment in, um, in San Diego. So I think that there are, there are great sort of, you know, hidden door speakeasies. And there are, like you said, like sort of ones that's like, this is a little awkward in, the, in a country that didn't have prohibition. So I think that it's, it's been... Well done. It's been poorly done. I think that as I step back, what's hilarious to me is that Brian's, his hidden door entrance, his taxidermy, a lot of what people have copied about PDT have not been my contributions sure. to PDT. It's been Brian's like sort of ideas. Well, stuff that happened organically. I mean, like yeah. it wasn't like let's set out to do something that no one's ever. You know, it just it happens. And so when you try to recreate that, it just becomes the like yeah, Xerox that, effect, right? Like yeah, you're making a copy of a copy. In some senses, it's like a zeitgeist thing. Like it was the right sure. idea for the time, and and it was sort of, you know, one of the things I always clarified back then is just and and that is now you know written you know immortalized in books like Robert Simonson's, but it's like. PDT wasn't the original, it was the sort of tipping point. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't the originator, I was merely the person who was willing to give the interview. I mean, Sasha and the people behind AngelShare really were, you know, not so interested in talking about what they did. And I think I've always, I think as a writer and, and communicator, I've always been interested in talking about what I do. Going yeah. back to what we were saying before, like if you're not excited to tell your story or to tell the story of your place, why should anyone be excited about coming there or knowing you? Yeah, and I, we've talked about that book that you're referring to, A Proper Drink, mm -hmm. um, several times, and we definitely recommend to our listeners to check it out um, because it does, it reads, it's crazy because it reads like a history book. Like everything, I think when you, 
we talked about literature and like an actual physical form of a book. Yeah. I feel like you just uh, innately feel like, wow, this is history and you're reading these really about well, these really modern, old people and then you I realize think, they're just 40. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I think that's the challenging part about modern history is <laughs> right. that it's still being written and without the distance from it, it's sort of, it's uh, that's a challenging book to write because many of the people who are featured in it have a say yeah. on where... Where right. they ended up or how they were presented. It was real weird because I'm like, oh, wow, this is like so long. Oh, the 2009. Like, and that's when I felt and, long ago. And I think who you write about and more importantly, maybe who you don't write sure, about. Right. Is, you know. That, that makes it hard. Dead I, people, like, I think Dave Wonderich has the best beat in the industry. Because, and and I, I don't know if he's ever admitted it, but it's like dead people are never going to raise their hand and complain about like the, <laughs> the history you've written about them. Whereas... The living ones tend to be a little bit more challenging to uh, to sort of contextualize. One thing that I think is real cool about your career is that despite having had your hands in like the food and wine um, cocktail guide and in PDT and, you know, opening team at Pegu and working at Gramercy, all of that, you waited like a decade before you opened a second bar. Um, yeah, Danny, actually, I think the experience coming from uh, Pache, which like I said, it was this amazing, everything about it was great and everything went wrong. And I realized that Danny Meyer also waited eight years, I believe it was, between opening Union Square Cafe and I think his second place might have been GT. And I remember reading that in Setting the Table and having come from a bar that was a restaurant that was great that closed, I realized it was like a house of cards. You know, when you open four restaurants in five years, you never dug the foundation deep enough so that when things start going wrong, that they that you have the foundation of people and, and resources. And I think, sadly, with respect to Prairie School, uh, Heisler had opened 10 places in, in less than 10 years. And I feel like when a couple of the chips started going the other direction, that it set off a domino effect in the company that... Uh, prevented us from recovering from some of our from some of our missteps. Sure. So we're in Indianapolis. Just a quick three-hour drive to Chicago. So um, anybody that listens to the show probably see the trends of a lot of Chicago uh, yeah. bartenders coming down, or the fact that we are on our Instagram feed. We're constantly in Chicago, and I unfortunately never made it to Prairie School. Um, we didn't I, give you a lot of time to get there. Um, so <laughs> how long was it open? Eight months. Eight months. Yeah. Um, but it was right over by Publican in uh, Fulton Market. Yep. Yeah. So um, it was in an area that, that seemingly you couldn't imagine anyone failing in. But I couldn't imagine anybody affording rent there. <laughs> well, that was something that, you know, a big learning experience for me was that I was, I very much, because I was working with such an experienced team, failed to look at some of the important Met, you know things that that everyone should know when they open a business, and I was unaware of the the rent that we took when we took that space, and and I just think that that rent was the sort of you know, we didn't have a great chance. Sure, well, and that, I think that's like a, it's a huge business learning curve. I, I feel like the I oftentimes have said it in Prairie Schools, my new Pache. You know, it's I learn more at. Pache than I learned, you know, 10 years at Gramercy Tavern and Pegu Club because nothing we did at Gramercy Tavern and, and PDT uh, went wrong. I feel like any, anything we did mm -hmm. at, at those restaurant and that restaurant or bar, we threw it up against the wall and it stuck. Whereas Prairie School, I feel like 
we did a lot of things that I, I'm, that I'm, we did a lot of things I'm proud of, but some of the mistakes we made, uh, we didn't recover well from. And, and some of the, the, the sort of oversights that I made, like that rent, uh, I paid very dearly for. I'm always interested in this because I am a business owner and I haven't had to make that decision yet, unlike whether it's time to close or not, or we're not doing well enough, or just, I, we haven't ever gotten to that point. Um, and I totally get the lucky I, stars, like the opening a bunch of places. Cause you know, you get really excited and you're like, I want to do a new project. And then I have a hard time telling myself, no, that's how I end up not <laughs> sleeping and just working constantly. But, um, I, we, I sat down and talked, um, a couple months ago, actually it was the day that we had, um, uh, your ex manager, Don Lee on the show. Yeah. Um, but later on that evening, um, I sat down and I chatted with Wiley Dufresne, a little bit about um, what it's like to close a restaurant. Like, I mean, and it's, it's a hard subject to breach, right? Because yeah. that's, it's such an emotional thing. I think that any of the places that, that I have, particularly my oldest one, which is our Thai restaurant, like, I don't know if I'd be able to go back in the building again. Like, there's that yeah, emotional attachment. Yeah, I feel like it's, um, it's surreal, especially the, for me in the sense of, like, it was a bar that I opened as a, sort of like consultant partner from Portland. So I found out that the decision that we were going to close was made while I was in Seoul, Korea. Wow. And um, I, I was like basically away and not able to like go fly back and close it. So it was to this day, like I'll go back to Chicago. Like my last memory there was not, did, did not come with any closure, you mm -hmm. know? So it's a... I'm still, like you said, I'm you still learn more processing. About yeah, yeah, I'm still, but I mean, it's like a. How long ago was this? Uh, it was in May. Ago. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, it's, that's some uh, fresh shit. It's recent and it's, in many ways, I'm still processing it. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it's, uh, it's, it's like a death, you know, and you sort of, um, everyone views death differently and, and I sort of view it in a very stoic way, but it's, um, it's a lot to process. Yeah. And it I was think definitely like, it was a dream project of mine that really kind of came to life. And, and I think that's the, one of the hardest things to mm -hmm. process is so many of our projects that we work on are fraught with compromises, some of them huge compromises. And this was a project that, that really came with the, some of the least compromises I've ever had. And so I really feel like the bar that we opened was near exactly what I wanted it to be. And so it's even more painful and humiliating and frustrating when what you really want something to be, not the compromised version of it, is what fails. Yeah, and that's the tough conversation to have. Yeah. You know, that's why I said I'm always curious about it, but I'm always also... Um uh, a little anxious about bringing it up because it's, no, it's an open like it's, wound, you know, for everyone. Wiley was still having a hard time. I mean, he said Wiley's been, I've known Wiley. I moved to Stanton and Clinton in 2002. And so Wiley, WD-50 was my local. And I just feel like Wiley is one of the most talented chefs on earth, but he's also, he's a dark man. So I feel <laughs> like Wiley, Wiley on like the busiest day ever at WD-50 would find something to be, uh, upset about and it's what <laughs> it's what makes him Wiley Dufresne yeah. I feel like for me I try to focus on the the positives you know what I mean like I'm I, no one would ever accuse me of being optimistic but um yeah I, I feel like the what has made me 
I think successful in life and in my career is being willing to be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And I think that putting yourself in a vulnerable position uh, is hard to do, but it, it, it allows a sort of access to your emotions and heart that that sort of, I think when you put that out there either as a server or as a manager, or as an operator or in an interview, um, it, I think that the, the humanity level, uh, the higher kind of calling of our industry is I think what is most appealing to everyone about our industry. And I feel like when you, when everything is, is hidden behind, you know, your sort of ego and your, and your sort of competitive, uh, your more sort of base competitive instincts, that to me is just like you might as well be interviewing the running back from the football team. <laughs> right. You know, you like if you, it, it's listening to Bill Belichick and Nick Saban, who are arguably the two best football coaches ever created, like in an oh, interview. you're an Indianapolis man. Or, yeah. yeah, I just feel like whatever you want to call it, like listening to a great coach yeah, 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 sure, answer questions with like different maxims about like life or sports, it's like, it's really fucking boring. It's <laughs> yeah. all true, I'm sure. But it's boring. I would concur. <laughs> um, whenever sports come up, I just kind of have to take a back seat and be like, "All right, I'll I'll jump back on when conversation shifts." I, I just <laughs> back I don't, to wine or cocktails. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know sports, and I know it goes against me being a Hoosier. The drama of it all is, I think, part of what makes it um, gets people interested. Yeah, and I think that the I've learned more in my career from failing than I have from. Mm -hmm succeeding and I've said it to my staff and I've said it to um, other leaders and, and I believe that when you, if you think about what, what I think great management can be, if, if you encourage your team to realize their potential as opposed to everyone to like live up to some code that some people can do in their sleep and some people will never be able to achieve uh, be, just because it's not within them, then inevitably you're asking your team to eventually get out of their comfort zone because in order to grow, you have to do something that is outside of your comfort zone. And when you try to do just something- had this conversation on the drive yeah, here. It's like, and when you do something out of your comfort zone, inevitably you're going to make a mistake or fail. And I feel like as the boss, if you dust that, pick that person off, dust them off and say, you know what, this is what I think happened and why you failed. Why don't you- think about doing it this way the next time. I feel like if that's what you do, then you're setting up your, what's your job then your fundamental job as the leader of that place is basically to offer people an opportunity to fail and to pick them up, dust them off and send them back in the game. And I think that for me, I hopefully Prairie school, you know, like Gramercy Tavern, like getting fired from Gramercy Tavern was, was a thing for me for many years and now it's actually a speed bump that was more of a ramp that I think I took off from. And I'm hoping that Prairie School is very much a thing that I sort of am living with right now. But hopefully it's a ramp that I'll take off from that was, uh, you know, that, that has a lot of to learn from mm -hmm. for me. Absolutely. So, when uh, again, I didn't ever make it over there. Um, and before we wrap up, I mean, I just, 
I, I knew some of the people that worked there because yeah. of uh, just, it's a small community yeah. and we're in the Midwest here, folks. But I mean, when you're crafting or helping craft, because you said you did a lot of, your role there was a little bit more of like kind of consulting from afar. Like when you're crafting that cocktail menu, I mean, how is it that you kind of decide the story that you want to tell? Like, how do you tell a story through cocktails and what, you know, you're talking about all of your experiences through, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, working through all those places and, you know, having the opportunity to fail, et cetera. Like, how does that come across as a story of, of Jim on, on, a, on a list? Well, I think that the, the drinks program at Prairie School was special because for me, I feel like the, I grew up in Oak Park and River Forest where Frank Lloyd Wright's home, home and studio where I went to, you know, play tennis and swam at a tennis club he designed. I drove past either his home and studio or uh, Unity Temple every day to high school. So it's like, it was something that I was born around and then something that, you know, between that and the Bauhaus and sort of the Art Institute and the sort of architectural and design uh, heritage of Chicago, it was, I think, having left Chicago and then lived in Wisconsin and then New York and Portland, you know, in some ways when you live there, you take for granted what you grew up around. And then when you leave, you realize, like, oh, my God, like, this was kind of different than, like, the the things that were around were just not, they're not around in other cities anywhere else in the world. And so I feel like as a, as a Midwesterner who left the Midwest, telling, opening a bar around this at Prairie School concept really was a, was a conceit, an elaborate sort of conceit that allowed me to basically share my affection for where I grew up, and, but also to celebrate and a legacy of that place that perhaps people who live there take for granted because they because they've lived there their whole life. Mm -hmm. And I think that if we think about what great bars and restaurants do in 2018, I think they celebrate their they have a sense of place, they have a sense of purpose, they and there's a, a pride around where they come from and what they do. And I think that that concept, not opening a frankly right theme bar, which I think at its worst was the way it was communicated, but if you look at what Prairie School architecture and architects did, they didn't call themselves Prairie School architects, the journalists called them that. And they, after the Chicago fire, it was a group of architects who wanted to rebuild Chicago, not as a neoclassical European city, but as a city of a, of a, place in the Midwest that was that was distinctly American. And I think that going back to the sort of zeitgeist of the speakeasy in 2007, I believe, and perhaps I was wrong, or perhaps other things that, uh, you know, sort of undercut my ability to tell this story, but I believe that that same architectural zeitgeist that those architects who were, who were trying to rebuild their city in a, in a distinctly Midwestern fashion I was trying to open a bar that was not trying to be a great New York or London or LA mm -hmm. or Japanese bar, but I was trying to use my travels throughout the world and affection for all those places, but trying to really isolate what is distinctly Midwestern and particularly Chicagoan, and what can we do in this bar that is not insular and is not self-reflective, but that is actually Excellent, and, and I think that that's I think it, in in the worst examples of our of our industry bars and restaurants, there's the worst I think can be insular 
and narcissistic and self-serving and just sort of say like, hey, we're the best, we're from X and we do things this X way. And I think the best way to do it is actually to say, hey, I actually have been all over the world and I am interested in the way everyone does things all over the world and I can do these things, but I've actually chosen the ways in which we value things and see things and enjoy things. And we're gonna celebrate that here, not out of spite or not in a, in a competitive way, but in a way that celebrates this for its true excellence. And I think that Prairie School was a local bar concept that was really trying to plant the flag and say, we are local members of this world, not just of this country or, or of this state. And I think that in some ways maybe it was, there are a lot of reasons why it didn't work, but I think that was the concept. And it's something that, you know, it was very cool. And going back to the people you probably met and knew, um, I had a great team that we hired and that most of them opened and closed that bar. Mm -hmm. And they, despite maybe not making as much money as they could have made at other bars, they, they crushed it for me. You know, and I think for, for them, um, I'm more sort of disappointed and frustrated than for myself. What, um, I'm, I'm just curious as to like the, the living arrangement. Uh, you, you live in Portland. I live in Portland and I earn no income in Oregon. So I basically, what I, when I left New York four years ago, I realized that I was traveling at least a third of my time from New York and at a certain point I realized like I could do this job from anywhere. It's right. just a matter of whether my employers are comfortable not seeing me in the office really ever unless they want to fly me out. And eventually I set it all up and then about three months before I was just going to make the plunge, I reached out to everyone I worked with. I was like, hey, what do you think about me doing my job from Portland, Oregon? And all, <laughs> and all of them for the most part were a little hesitant, but they're like, you know what, like, you're never here anyway, so what's the difference? So I've been able to sort of hold on to a lot of that uh, work from New York and grow some of it as well. And, and you mentioned you're married. I'm married. So what, what, why Portland? Was there, so does your was, wife have a connection my wife, there? No, my wife's um, born in Boston, raised in Jersey, and it was... Um, Sort of New York has yeah, like a. Kind of from the Midwest, like this has got to be culture shock. I mean, we've both been to Portland quite a bit. It's like no, Portland is. We had. It's definitely weird. There's a reason they call stay, it's keep weird. Portland weird. I jokingly refer to like most. I was I lived in Manhattan for 12 years, and when all of my friends peeled off and moved to Brooklyn, people would inevitably be like, "So when are you moving to Brooklyn?" And I used to say to them like. I didn't move halfway across the country to live in Brooklyn. And, and I feel like Portland is my Brooklyn. Like it is the sort of, it has a lot of the creature features that Brooklyn has, but it's immensely more livable. And I think for me having a young kid and now we've added a second, it's just a, I've realized at a certain point that New York is actually a great place to raise kids, but it's a matter for you as a parent, are you comfortable, are you as the parent comfortable versus as the kid comfortable? And I think for me, um, in Portland, we can sort of raise our kids around in, a, in a, a town that is green, that is sort of politically liberal, that is, uh, that has a lot of the values um, that I want to raise my kids in, and then we can add 
diversity and culture and some of the, the important um, elements of life that I think would have been easier to instill living in a bigger city. It's a great city. Yeah. Um, as we wind down here today, we always ask all of our guests if you have any uh, hangover cures that you would like to share with us or your personal hangover cures. You know, it's... With all this travel, surely you got some sort of... Uh, it's interesting and sort of uh, probably anticlimactic and not, <laughs> not the hangover cure that any of your listeners want to hear, but I, I used to, basically about four years ago, after a, um, a trip with Ricky Gomez doing CrossFit in the morning and... Um, and heavy drinking at night, I, I came home and went to the doctor and I was like, you know what? I am more than hungover. I am like existentially hungover. And then they, <laughs> they, they, took, they took some blood tests on me and they were like, wow, you've got elevated liver enzymes. You know, you have any idea? Guilty. All of us at the table. Yeah. Yeah. Right, and, right, and they're right. like, do you have any idea why? And they're like, well, I was like, what, what usually could be the result of that? And they're like, well, hepatitis. I was like, no, I don't have hepatitis. And they're like, Obesity, and I was like, well, I could lose ten pounds, and then, <laughs> and then the third one was like, uh, you know, alcohol, and and I was like, hmm. And so, for the last four years, I've very sort of boringly been um, reducing my alcohol intake. So, sadly, I'm not really ever hungover anymore, which is great for the hangover, but it's pretty boring uh, for the night before. So I think that it's a I, I lived like uh, a rock star for a long time. And, and I would say that the hangover cure that I would recommend to your listeners is to, instead of having a hangover every morning as I had for 10 to 15 years, to uh, spread out your hangovers <laughs> so that you can have more of them. Go for the marathon. Yeah. Well, Jim, thanks for coming on the show, man. This has been a lot of fun. And I'm really looking forward to your, uh, your talk here in a little bit. And thanks lunch, for all the great questions. And- uh, again, gentlemen, well, we don't have any cocktails in front of us yet, so we can cheers with our uh, water bottles. No, <laughs> we can't do it. I think we'll fix that. Yeah. Hey, there's some All right. Well, until up. next time, uh, where can people find you online or, or buy the book? You know, um, we definitely want to. The book keep- is hopefully go ask for it at your local bookstore, and if they don't have it, maybe they'll order it, and then we can help support local bookstores. And then um, you can find me in the world or at the handle Mixography M I X O G R A P H Y, which is my little business. Super. All right. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And until next time, folks.